You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It should probably come as no surprise, but the out-of-wedlock birth rate has soared over the past half century. Estimates vary, but it's believed that approximately 15% of all children are currently born out of wedlock. But there is enormous variation in the numbers. Countries like India, China, and a good portion of Northern Africa and Southern Asia they have less than 1% of the children born to unmarried women. Yet, many Latin American countries are at the opposite extreme. In countries like Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Costa Rica, in excess of 60% of all children are born to single parents. And in Europe, countries such as Belgium, France, Norway, and Sweden, the rate exceeds 50%. Now, it's estimated that here in the United States, about 40% of all births are to unmarried women. But, again, there's great variation between the states. In three states, the percentage of children born out of wedlock exceeds 50%. They are Mississippi at 55.8%, Louisiana at 54.5%, and New Mexico at 53.2%. Compare those percentages with the three lowest rates. They are Idaho at 27.7%, Colorado at 23.2%, and the lowest is Utah at 19.3%. Now, I should point out that with an estimated 2 billion people worldwide lacking birth certificates, statisticians have no choice but to use predictive models and other data sources to make their estimates. In other words, don't take these numbers as gospel. But one thing that is clear is that society is much more accepting of single mothers today than they were a century ago. Back then, being labeled illegitimate, well, that was something that could make life very difficult for both the child and the parent. Take, for example, Chicago mother Kathleen Morell. Back in 1923, she was arrested for not having one, not two, not three, not four, but five children out of wedlock. She was forced to face a legal system that threatened to take all of her children away with the thought that they get better care from an orphanage. So just how did Kathleen Morell end up in this position? Who was the father or fathers of these children? And just how was the case resolved? Well, the answers to these questions and much more, that's coming up next in today's story that I've titled, The Love Pirate. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information When the first United States census was completed back in 1790, the young country's population stood at 3,929,214 people. Virginia was the most populous state, and Delaware was the least. 
Now compare that with the most recent census in 2020, and the population had grown to 331,449,281 people. California currently has the largest population, and Wyoming has the least. Now for people like myself who do a lot of historical research, the data collected by each census really can be quite useful. One can easily determine where someone was living, with whom, their age, marital status, occupation, and more. It's not an in-depth document, but it is a great place to start. It's a good jumping-off point. The records for each census are released 72 years after the data is collected. For example, just last year I received notification on Ancestry of the very first match from my family, you know, from the 1950 census. And of course, I've gotten other matches since. And it was of a great aunt who has been deceased for many years. While she spent a lot of time at family gatherings while I was younger, I really never knew a whole heck of a lot about her other than I knew she was never married, she never had children, she lived in New York City, and that she worked for a company called the Viking Press. It was a publisher. But what I found most interesting about my aunt when I was younger was that she supposedly had traveled the world. But sadly, it was many years later that I learned that many of these adventures were not to distant lands, but to mental institutions instead. And there it was, in black and white, in the 1950 census. At that time, she was a resident of the Pinewood Mental Sanitarium in Summers, New York. I must admit, this wasn't exactly what I was expecting to find, but it did help to fill in just another little tiny piece of my family's puzzle. Of course, the census is only as accurate as the information that individuals provide to it. For example, take the case of Chicago resident John Curtin. The 1910 census indicates that the 39-year-old Curtin was a wholesale coal salesman who lived with his wife of 10 years, that's Margaret, age 33, and their son, John Dorian, who was age 9 at the time. Ten years later, he's still in the coal business, but he's now, of course, 48 years old, Margaret's 43, and Dorian was still living with them at 19. But there was another John Curtin living in Chicago at the time. He was 45 years old, that's three years younger than the first John Curtin, and he lived with his 29-year-old wife Kathleen and their four children. That was Kathleen, age seven, Stanley was five, Janet was three, and the youngest was Alice at age one. Now, as I previously mentioned, the accuracy of the census solely depends on the information provided. And it was later discovered that the two John Curtins recorded, they were actually one and the same person. This guy, he was leading a double life. He married Margaret way back on July 19th of 1899 and had a son. And then he later hooked up with another woman, that's Kathleen Morell. He was operating both households at the same time. And while he never married Kathleen, who was born in Washington, D.C. in 1889, the couple did have five children together. And the last one, who was Rose or Rosemary, she was born after the completion of the 1920 census. But what I find most amazing is that John Curtin was able to juggle both of these households for more than 12 years. He lived with his legal wife and son at 207 North Pine Avenue in Chicago, while he maintained a residence with his mistress and their five children at 5524 South Wentworth Avenue. A quick check of Google Maps shows that these two homes were not near one another, so there really was no way he could simply, you know, hop out of one bed and into the other. Even as the crow flies, which we can't do, 
These two homes were about 9.3 miles or 15 kilometers apart. Of course, supporting two households doesn't come cheap, but John Curtin had done well for himself. He had worked his way up from coal salesman to owning his own coal business. That was the new Erie Coal Company. But then, suddenly, in December of 1922, he informed Margaret that their sham of a marriage, it was over, and he was leaving. He had already turned over the coal business to his son, Dorian, so he opted to retire, moved out of the house, and requested a divorce. Despite having been aware of her husband's affair for 11 years, Mrs. Curtin chose to ignore it. However, she now found herself on the verge of divorce, which, of course, could mean a loss of the comfortable lifestyle that her husband had provided for her. Filled with rage and a sense of betrayal, Margaret Curtin was about to get even. On the evening of Friday, January 5th, 1923, Margaret swore out a complaint against both her husband and Kathleen Morell, accusing both of contributing to the delinquency of their five children. Kathleen later described what happened next, quote, Then they came one night while I was preparing dinner. They took me to jail and took my fingerprints like a criminal, all because I loved and had five beautiful bright babies without a little ceremony. She was taken by the police to the Harrison Street station, where she admitted the curtain was indeed the father of her children. Of course, today something like this would be unlikely to occur, but back in 1923, the charges against Miss Morell were quite serious. If she was found guilty, she would lose custody of all her children. It's unclear where she got the money from, but she was released on a $1,000 bond, which is over $17,500 today, and a hearing was set in the Court of Domestic Relations for January 16th. But they wouldn't let her have her children back. Instead, they were taken to the city's juvenile detention home. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. At this point, the story becomes a case of she said versus she said. And that's mainly because John Curtin, well, you know, he just disappeared off the face of the earth. And that left the two women to fight it out in the press. So let's first start with Margaret Curtin, his legal wife. Through her lawyer, that's Samuel Friedman, she asserted that the charges had been filed solely to safeguard the children from the disgrace of knowing that they were born out of wedlock. And while her husband had requested a divorce because he desired to dedicate his life to building a home with Miss Morell and their children, she made it clear it was never, ever going to happen. And this is the wife speaking here. Quote, I will never consent to a divorce. He is my husband and I am his wife. That other woman can't change this. In another interview, she added, quote, He's mine because I gave him my youth and beauty, because I fought and struggled away my young years that he might rise to prosperity. It is not true that I condoned for 11 years my husband's relationship with Ms. Morell and sat by content to let the affair go along so long as he would support me and our boy, now 21. 
I learned my husband's philanderings in 1913. The second child of their illicit union was then about to be born. I paid the Morell woman $500. That's a little over $15,000 a day. I paid the Morell woman $500 if she would break off the affair and leave town. She took the money, which I can prove, but failed to live up to her promises. The state should look after Miss Morell's children and give them the care that they need. Surely it is too much to ask that I do it. She concludes, With tears in his eyes, my husband has frequently promised to give this woman up. I pressed the charges which brought about her arrest in good faith for the children's sake. I did not act through revenge. And in the opposing corner, we have girlfriend Kathleen Morell. Quote, He's mine because I love him and he loves me. And love is greater than any man-made law. She then told of the early days of their relationship. Quote, When I met him, I was 19. He was 37. His son was 10. He told me he was not in love with his wife and that she had never loved him. He felt that the boy's education was something for which he was responsible. His wife refused to give him a divorce, and he said that while the boy needed his home and his father, he would remain. But he told her that he loved me and I him, and that I did not ask for anything in return. When the baby was born almost 11 years ago, she came to my home. She stormed in rage, but I reminded her that we had spoken to her before there was anything between us, and that I had made my bargain and would stand by it. Oh, if she had only had me arrested then, if she intended to do it. I was young and I only had one baby. I could have supported her. Now I have five and I don't think I can support them all. She added, She wouldn't divorce him because she loved the luxuries he could give her. He gave her everything he had, every penny, when he left her to come to me for good. He educated her boy, sent him through college, and gave him his business. He came to me, a man of 50, without a penny. He was going to start all over again and educate my children. I loved him, and money doesn't mean anything when you have love. I had a right to these babies. Kathleen also explained how they're able to get away with living together, even though they were unmarried. Quote, Everybody will pump you when you first come into a neighborhood, but if you mind your own business without trying to, they forget all about you. They have their own troubles, or perhaps they turn to watch the next newcomer on the block. After the first baby was born, they decided to leave Chicago and move into a small house on Linwood Avenue in Milwaukee. There, they lived quietly as Mr. and Mrs. George Curtin, not John Curtin, and she admitted that, quote, babies give an air of respectability. I should add that at some point they did move back to Chicago, although it's not clear when. Basically, the couple lived a very simple life. Curtin would visit Kathleen and the children on Saturdays and Sundays, and then he'd spend the weekdays living with his wife and son while he ran the coal business. And to explain away his long absences, you know, because he was only there on weekends, Ms. Murrow would tell nosy neighbors and her children that their father was a traveling slot machine salesman, and of course that forced him to be away from home quite a bit. But one thing that John Curtin was certain never to do was to tell his wife where his new family was living. He knew that if Margaret ever found out, she would make a big stink about it. In particular, he feared that she would inform both the church and the children's school that they were all illegitimate. 
Kathleen told a reporter from the Chicago Tribune, quote, If they'd read my story in a magazine or had seen it in the movies, they would call it a tale of perfect love. But because I'm a real person, they call me a love pirate. Love pirate? That sounds as if I had fine clothes, went cabareting, enjoyed booze parties, and had jewels showered upon me. How different my life has been. When you have five children, you haven't much time to go out. As the two sides battled it out in the press, the police continued their hunt for John Curtin, but he was nowhere to be found. But there was one person who knew where he was. That was his mistress, Kathleen Morell. Her attorney convinced her that it was in her best interest to file a complaint and lead the police to him. And while it caused her great distress to do so, that's exactly what she did. On Tuesday, January 9th, she called John and scheduled a time and place for the two to meet. What he didn't know was that a trap had been set and the authorities nabbed him as soon as he arrived. It would soon be learned that while he was in hiding, Curtin was working towards getting Kathleen and the children out of the city, you know, to a place where no one would bother them. He told the press, quote, I love my children. I want to do what's best for them. But I do not agree with Mrs. Curtin that they should be taken from their mother and brought up by the state. Well, he may not have agreed with her, but it was his wife who bailed him out, and he then went home with her. And by the next day, Kathleen was expressing her disillusionment with her beau, quote, Wives always win. I am through with him. He will go back to his wife. She signed his bond. I will get all I want in this world, and that's my babies. The problem was that she had no means of support, and there really was no guarantee that Mrs. Curtin would ever let her husband send even a single penny her way. Yet there were people who were sympathetic to her predicament, and a fund was set up to collect money to help Kathleen. I guess you can kind of consider it the uh, GoFundMe of its day. In addition, friends that they had made while they were living in Milwaukee, they were also raising money for her. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, before I reveal the outcome of the various court proceedings, let me share a few quotations from two of their children. First, we have oldest daughter, that's 11-year-old Kathleen, who stated, quote, Papa and Mama never went out together. They just stayed home. Now, according to son Stanley, quote, He always brought us presents, and sometimes he'd take us to a show while Mama stayed home and minded Baby Rose. And he gave us a Christmas tree this year and everything. On another occasion, Stanley described his mother as being, quote, Some cook, oh boy. 
Just one day after John Curtin was arrested, Kathleen was in juvenile court in an attempt to regain custody of her children. Should she lose, the children would have been transferred from the juvenile detention home to the home for the friendless. Now, the name is really awful, but it was actually a common charitable organization back then, and it had been set up to both educate and care for orphan children. It was Judge Victor P. Arnold who heard the case and then handed down his decision. But first, he pointed out that, quote, nothing could be more definite than Illinois law in these cases. It reads, The reputed father of an illegitimate child shall not have the right to the custody or control of the child if the mother is living and wishes to retain custody. In other words, John Curtin, he was out of the picture. He couldn't gain custody of his children. As for mom Kathleen, Judge Arnold stated, quote, The woman is not unfit to have the care and custody of these five children just because they're illegitimate. The fact that she brought them into the world without a legal father does not give the state the right to take them away from her. He continued, If it could be definitely proved that this woman did not have enough money to support these children, they could not be taken from her. It is not illegal to be poor. Well, Kathleen Morell may have gotten her children back, but she still faced one additional hurdle. That is that both John and she were facing additional charges of contributing to the delinquency of the children, you know, based on the complaint filed by Mrs. Curtin. Of course, if she ended up back in jail, the children would once again be taken away from her. Unlike today, where cases are scheduled months or even years into the future, 11 days after that initial complaint was filed, both John and Kathleen were standing in the Court of Domestic Relations. Judge William L. Morgan asked Curtin, quote, You admit you are the father of these five children? He replied, I do admit it. Judge Morgan showed no mercy for either partner in the illicit affair. Quote, Neither Curtin nor Ms. Morell is to be considered. One might forgive a woman who through love brought one illegitimate child into the world. But a woman who through a period of 13 years knowingly had five born to her out of wedlock cannot expect sympathy of a court. Neither should the law show mercy with Curtin. The children are the only ones to be considered. As a result, the judge concluded that John Curtin was guilty of contributing to the delinquency of all five of his children. He received a one-year probation sentence, and that included an order prohibiting any contact with Kathleen throughout that entire period. In addition, Curtin was ordered to pay $5,500 for the support of his children, although Judge Morgan allowed him to deduct $2,400 from money that he had already spent on the children. This left poor old dad with a balance of $3,100, which is nearly $55,000 today, and that was to be paid in equal sums split over 10 years. The press reported shortly after the decision was handed down that John Curtin, guess what, he was actively seeking a job. <laughs> I just couldn't help but wonder if his son Dorian would hire him back at the coal company that he founded. And then Mrs. Curtin's attorney, that's again Samuel Friedlander, he informed the judge that she had been too ill to appear in court and she wished to have all the charges against Kathleen Morell dropped. But it was made clear that if John Curtin ever attempted to rekindle his love affair with Kathleen, she would reopen that case and have Ms. Morell once again prosecuted. Kathleen's plan now is to leave Chicago and restart her life somewhere else. Quote, 
I am through with John Curtin, the father of my children. All I want now is my babies. I don't know what I'm going to do, what I can do, but we will get along some way if the world will only leave us alone. And that's exactly what happened. After this, the story just fell out of the news cycle and it was forgotten. But once again, we can use the census in an attempt to piece together what happened next, although I have to tell you the details are incredibly sketchy. According to the 1930 census, that's seven years after the couple was arrested, Kathleen and her children had relocated to Cleveland, Ohio, and that lies about 320 miles or 512 kilometers east of Chicago. She's working as a sales lady in a department store there, but what I found most interesting is that she changed her name from Kathleen Morell to Catherine Curtin, which makes you wonder if the couple actually married, uh, but my guess is they didn't. She is listed as being a widow, and most likely she adopted the last name of Curtin simply because that was the name of all her children. By adopting the last name of Curtin herself and stating she was a widow, that would give the appearance that the children weren't illegitimate. Of course, that's all conjecture on my part. Catherine was still there in 1940, living with her daughters Janet, who was 23 at the time, and the youngest Rosemary, who was 19. The 1950 census shows that only her 32-year-old daughter Janet was still living with her. Now, the 1930 census also shows that Margaret Curtin was living with her son Dorian in a rented Chicago apartment, and she's also listed as having been a widow. Margaret would later follow her son to Oklahoma and passed away on Tuesday, October 18th of 1960. In her obituary, it states that, quote, Mrs. Curtin was the widow of John S. Curtin, a coal dealer who died in 1920. Well, we know that can't be true because the court case took place three years later in 1923. So what happened to John Stanislaw Curtin afterward? I'll be honest and say, I don't know. Now, the newspapers did report he was 50 years old at the time of his arrest in January of 1923. That would imply that he's probably born in 1872 or 1873. Now, a search through Ancestry comes up with only one John Curtin who was born around that time in Chicago that could possibly be a match. He was born on May 24th of 1873 and died on April 20th of 1944. Yet, of course, I can't say with any certainty that that is the correct John Curtin, so we'll just kind of put that in the maybe yes, maybe no category. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Now before I sign off, I just want to remind you that if you haven't done so already, that I would greatly appreciate it if you could complete a short survey for this podcast. Now my wife and I were on vacation down in Florida last week and I got a message from the contact at the podcast network I'm on and they said they've only received 78 responses and they need 200 before they can close out the survey. So they asked me to record a couple of spots, and you may be hearing those uh, because they're playing on all the episodes of my podcast. But they've assured me that once we hit the magic 200 number, they're going to turn off those ads. So just where can you find the survey? It's at www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And I also have a link to it on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. It takes little time to complete. It's totally anonymous. But if you choose to provide your email address, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Anyway, if you've done so or you're about to, I thank you very much. It's greatly appreciated. 
I'll just remind you that the Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Network. You can discover more great podcasts like this one at airwavemedia.com. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.